Thank you very much for coming and joining Charles River Watershed Association as we discuss the role of law in cleaning up the Charles River. My name is Jennifer Ryan. I am Deputy Director of Advocacy, and I am joined by Sue Smith. I'm the Policy Advocate with the Charles River Watershed Association. And both of us joined CRWA within the year, and we're very excited to be here. It's a great organization to work with, and we're looking forward to sharing with you our work. So a little background on CRWA. Our mission is to protect, restore, and enhance the Charles River and its watershed through science, advocacy, and the law. We were founded in 1965 by residents who did not accept that the Charles cannot be cleaned up, and it is one of the oldest watershed organizations in the country. We work with the EPA, state agencies, and our 35 watershed municipalities. We have an interdisciplinary staff of 16, and our program areas are river science and restoration, stormwater solutions, climate resilience, and outreach and education. That's a little bit about our watershed, just to orient you. The Charles River is 80 miles long. It starts in Hopkinton. We have 19 dams on the main stem and 100 dams overall throughout the watershed. It's 308 square miles. There are 35 cities and towns, and the Charles itself runs through 23 of those towns. It flows north. There are 1 million plus residents, and 60% of the population lives in EJ neighborhoods. And to further orient you, the Charles River watershed or the Quinnebokwin, which means meandering river, is in the tribal lands of the, Mass excuse me, the Massachusetts, Wampanoag, and Nipmuc nations. And we acknowledge their role as past, present, and future caretakers of this land. And we are committed to creating respectful engagements and relationships with indigenous communities in our watershed to learn, uplift, and support their relationship with the river. So our presentation today is roughly divided into two portions. The first covers how we have gotten from the dirty water of the past to where we are today, which is while greatly improved, is not quite swimmable or fishable. While the second is discussing the increasingly prevalent role of broader advocacy in our legal efforts and strategy to get the Charles to the goals of the Clean Water Act, which is to be fishable and swimmable and beyond. Right. Yeah. So we wanted to kind of orient you all with a bit of a better sense of what CRWA has been doing since around 1974, when we really each kind of took center stage in terms of our advocacy efforts. And so we're going to kind of run you through fairly quickly to where we are now in the current time and where legal advocacy has sort of entered our, our general range of strategies. So so we, we've come a long way is the first thing that we want to start off with saying. I mean, our advocacy has been rather effective and we're, we're blessed to have been able to be this effective. Many watershed associations don't have the sort of success that we have. And so as you can see on the left there, that is actually Milford in 1965. And so many dump towns had their dumps directly on the water with literally just you know sewage and refuse emptying into the river. And then on the right now, you can see that's the Charles River Esplanade. And the river is even swimmable from time to time. If anyone's heard of the city splash, it, it's a lottery. People actually rush to swim in our river now. Whereas I can say with fair certainty that fewer people will be rushing to swim on the picture on the left. So uh, I hope, and someone on this call has had the opportunity to go swimming in it. Uh, you may have also heard of Paris's efforts to make the Seine swimmable for the Olympics. There's a real push around the world to try and get our, not just our rivers, but our metropolitan rivers uh, to be more swimmable and accessible. And that's part of our efforts as well. So 
So yeah, uh, kind of covering our, our first, as I said, first sort of stage of, of advocacy here. In 1974, we were able to work with the uh, with the Metropolitan District Commission and DCR. They, they decided to purchase the Bemis Bam, and at the time, it was fairly dilapidated and actually did have space where fish were able to swim up through it. At the time, they wanted to repair that dam, and we, again, kind of thinking about a lot of different ways of using the law, directly worked with them to ensure that, in fact, it should not be repaired to enable fish and wildlife passage. Uh, and then in 1974 as well, Congress created the Natural Valley Storage Area, which is a critical part of our work here and has a number of functions that we'll be covering later on in this presentation. Uh, and then also in 1990, uh, we had the opportunity, actually, if you are familiar with the Zackham Bridge, we had a role in that as well. And so Kind of, you know, the, the first rumblings of our advocacy and the first kind of connections we've had with the law and uh, that kind of advances as time goes on. So with that, we wanted to kind of tell you a little bit more about, as I said, the Natural Valley Storage Area, which is a, a critical part, as I said, of the work that we do. So as you can see here on the slide, it created 8,000 acres of protected wetlands. And that has a lot of co-benefits. Uh, not only, of course, are you creating a great wetland space, but you're also preventing downstream flooding helping provide the natural habitat for so many of our species, replenishing water supplies and filtering out pollutants from entering the Charles, which as you can tell already from our presentation is sort of a key focus, right? You have to be thinking about the way that our natural ecosystem allows us to filter out pollutants. Uh, so this was all based on a 1972 study of the Charles River watershed that showed a need to protect the river and natural valley storage areas were chosen as a way of doing that very efficiently. And this was done by the Army Corps of Engineers who purchased the acres in 1977 and made the most recent acquisition in September, 1983. And so it has cost around 8.3 million at this point, but has approximately 8,095 acres and it's in a range of watershed towns. You should absolutely look it up after this presentation, get a sense of what towns have been benefiting and where it is, and also go check it out yourself. It's a beautiful area. Please. I would also say the Natural Valley Storage Area, you hear a lot about green infrastructure and nature-based solutions, um, and that's really part of the conversation about adapting to climate change and the increased precipitation that we're seeing. The MVSA is the original um, green infrastructure project. It's the only project of its kind by the Army Corps. It has been incredibly meaningful in terms of reducing downstream flooding um, in the Charles River watershed. And the impetus for this was the hurricane 1955, Hurricane Diane, which was massively destructive and caused huge flooding. Um, and at the time, there was a conversation around using gray infrastructure to make sure that that kind of event didn't happen again, which would have been tremendously expensive. And the founding executive director of the Charles River Watershed Association, Rita Barron, worked with the Army Corps and worked with Congress and with our state elected officials to take this route, which is better for the environment and much more cost effective. Oops. All right. Back to me. In 1994, we established a volunteer monthly monitor program. And the basis of a lot of our work um, is with volunteers. We have one of the longest running and largest volunteer um, programs. We have 80 volunteers taking monthly water samples at 35 locations in the Charles River for over 25 years. It's the longest running data set. And it has been used to guide implementation of the Clean Water Act by the EPA and by DEP. In 1994, um, one of our big successes and ongoing um, challenges mm -hmm. is working with the Massachusetts Water Resource Authority 
on the long-term combined sewer overflow plan to reduce sewage releases into the Charles during storms. We worked with MWRA, um, like we did with the Army Corps, to both reduce sewage and cost. So with the Army Corps, we found ways to reduce the cost to reduce downstream flooding um, through natural solutions, the Natural Valley Storage Area with MWRA. We worked with them on design engineered um, plans to reduce sewage releases by over 95% and to save ratepayers hundreds of millions of dollars. We aren't there yet, though, um, even though the river is significantly cleaner, millions of gallons are still released today. Every summer, the river is red flagged. If you're a rower or if you boat, you know that there's days when there are CSOs that go off and both treated and raw sewage is dumped into the river. And our goal is for there to be none of that. It should be clean. We should be able to swim in it. We should not be dumping sewage into the river. In 1995, we launched the IM3 study, and we also launched a Charles River initiative with the EPA, which we'll talk a little bit about. All right. Oh, yes. Sorry. Back back to the, I forgot I put in this, this other CSO slide in. I just wanted to talk a little bit about um, the history of this conversation about CSOs. We have been working for a long time to make the river both fishable and swimmable with the EPA and with our partners, and we've come a long way. Um, but even sort of back in the 90s, there was, we were looking back over the um, documents from the EPA recently about what the goals were. And in 2005, John DeVillers, who was at the EPA at the time, said that in 1995, John DeVillers, who was at the EPA at the time, said that by 2005, we want it to be fishable and swimmable. And although we've come a long way, we aren't there yet. It's you know 23 odd years later. All right. The other thing that we work quite a bit on um, is our, and, uh, excuse me. Um, we conduct integrated monitoring, modeling and management IM3 study with support from the EPA and MWRA. And this is the basis of the work that we do now. So we continue to look at what's happening in the river itself and also doing GIS analyses to look at impervious surfaces and phosphorus runoff to do a full watershed management plan to get the river to those goals of being fishable and swimmable. Right, so again, kind of advancing. As we became more familiar with working with a lot of our local agencies and organizations, we started kind of thinking about how we could expand our advocacy efforts and utilize more sources of law. So in 2003, we worked with the Ipswich River and sort of decided that they were an ideal uh, candidate for low flow analysis. In 2005, we developed the Charles River Nutrient Total Maximum Daily Load, that's a TMDL. And uh, we will cover both of those in a little more detail because this is where we're starting to get into the nitty gritty. Uh, in 2005, we also kind of partnered with the Division of Marine Fisheries and the Department of Conservation and Recreation, again, that's DCR, to uh, allow for greater fish passage in the Bleachery Dam. And so, you know, a lot of our narrative around dams is removal, but in a lot of cases, we're just trying to determine what is the best course forward. And so with some of these dams where it, it really is inhibiting the migratory passage of fish, we need one approach with others, we need others. So there, there's kind of a little bit of our, our beginning work there. And along with that comes in 2006, our work with the American Shad Restoration Program and the return of the American Shad to the Charles River, which was very important. In 2011, all of this advocacy effort actually started really paying off. We got recognition in the form of the Thies uh, International River Prize, and, and uh, that was for visionary and sustainable excellence in river management. So we were very proud to achieve that. Um, so as I noted, in 2003, uh, the Ipswich River is, to this day, uh, a watershed that has a lot of problems. And so 
that was kind of the first conservation-based water withdrawal permit on the Charles and sort of in this general area of Massachusetts. And so we worked with the Ipswich River Watershed Association against the Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection, actually, for failing to follow the Water Management Act. And there's there's a lot more there on the Water Management Act, but this is sort of an initial sense of, of what we needed to do in order to kind of deliver upon the idea of the Water Management Act, which is to secure and, and, and provide sustainable water resources for all Massachusetts residents. So you can see there the result was that that suit was dismissed without prejudice, but it did lead to the Sustainable Water Management uh, Act initiative and some negotiations there as well. Um, and then, as I also noted, in 2005, one of our, our biggest breakthroughs and something that we continue to be proud of today is our work with the total maximum daily load of phosphorus in the river, which has led to a lot of questions around the res residual designation lawsuit. Uh, that's something that we have been pursuing in partnership with the Conservation Law Foundation using a lot of our science that we've developed in-house as sort of the basis for our legal claims. Now, that suit was lost on mandatory duty. And that, of course, is generally the idea that there is no mandatory duty to regulate in the way that we were asking them to. However, that, as I said, has proven to be the seed of a lot of uh, subsequent efforts that we'll discuss further. And so, right, moving to 2011. Okay. So we, so as Zeus was talking about the TMDL and residual designation authority, and we'll also talk about the MS4 permits. We collect data on what's going on in the river. We look at impervious surfaces. We try to understand stormwater um, runoff and CSO. The stormwater runoff is the greatest source of pollution in the Charles River at this point in time. And we know that we need to work with communities in order to reduce their stormwater runoff, both on public and private spaces. And in 2013, we did the Green Streets guidance with Boston. And our goal there is to regreen city streets and achieve stormwater pollution reduction targets. That's still a big um, part of our work. We work with green infrastructure ambassadors we review individual plans as they come through MEPA. Um, we work with communities on how to regreen and how to put in green infrastructure. It's infused throughout the work that we do. In 2014 and 2022, our advocacy resulted in improved public water supply conservation. Um, one of the areas where we work, as Zeus mentioned, is under the Water Management Act. And we were successful in getting requirements um, on limits for public water supply withdrawals um, and also um, for both permits and registrations in 2014 and 2022. The most recent one being registrations, which are small, smaller volume withdrawals. This is a big, big step forward. Um, as you know, there has been quite a significant drought over the past couple of years. Hopefully we will come out of that this summer. Um, the Charles River ran dry in five spots last summer. The Ipswich River, as Zeus mentioned, is the poster child in many ways for over withdrawals, um, but those withdrawals impact um, watersheds around Massachusetts. And it's very important that as we look towards a climate future, that we think um, more holistically and conservatively in how we manage our water resources. And as Zeus mentioned, um, we were recognized both internationally for the Thies River Flies, but we were also recognized by American Rivers for our annual Earth Day Charles River cleanup, which I would imagine some of you may have participated in. We um, get the most pounds of trash and most volunteers mobilized. I don't know if we're proud of the most pounds of trash, but we are proud of the volunteers that come and help. Um, last year, we took out 57,000 pounds of trash. Uh, we also pull out, I mean, just me thinking about trash, 
I'm sure you saw the articles about the cars in the river too. People are pulling out cars, but they're also pulling out vacuum cleaners, tires, and tons of plastic. In 2019, um, one of the things that we did, which I think is being, uh, it's a model for um, other watersheds and probably also a model elsewhere in the United States, is a Charles River Climate Compact. And that's a coalition of 28 Charles River watershed cities and towns. They came together um, with us to better understand impacts of climate change. One of the challenges in a state, which is a home rule state, without strong county government, um, and there's benefits of it, but there's also challenges, is that we don't really have a way to understand regional impacts and watershed, um, climate change is water change, and these things happen at the watershed level. And so we worked um, with funding from the state to put in place the Charles River flood model. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But to better understand the impact of future flooding in our watershed and to share information um, between communities, both for how to adapt to, prepare for, um, and understand that what happens upstream um, impacts what happens downstream. So the flood model is pretty interesting. And if you live in the Charles River watershed, I urge you to hop on our website and take a look. You can put in um, where you live and you can see what it looks like in 10 years, 30 years, 50 years. It's a computer simulation. We did it with Weston and Sampson. And it shows how increased precipitation inland flooding will affect our communities. It gives us um, insight. It helps inform our advocacy. Um, it also helps inform how we work with communities and where we want to select projects that we want to work on. And some of the stats that I think are pretty interesting is that the U.S. National Climate Assessment, um, as I'm sure you've seen, um, the Northeast has more than a 70% increase in the amount of precipitation falling. So when you look at a map of the U.S. and where it's getting wetter, it's in the Northeast. By 2050, we may have as many as 17 days annually with over an inch of rain. And I'm sure everybody has experienced this at some point now. I mean, I know I certainly have. We have a lot more runoff in our yard. A few more inches of rainfall across the watershed can increase the volume of the Charles River by millions of gallons. It is both bad for people and property. It's also bad for the river because it means more stormwater runoff. And stormwater runoff leads to cyanobacteria blooms and trash going directly into the river. Currently, a 10-year storm, which has a 10% chance of occurring annually, will flood approximately 7,660 acres. That same storm in 2070 will do another 3,000 acres, so almost 10,000 acres of flooding. So areas like Newton, Waltham, and Needham, that means in 2070, once, once safe areas that have not historically flooded will flood. And that's something that we need to prepare for. And we are working with the state and urging the state to do more um, or other watersheds so that they can do this kind of work too, um, and also to work with communities to prepare for this. This is a this is sort of the, the next phase. We talk a lot about a transition to um, net zero and electrification and reducing greenhouse gas emissions. We need to be investing significantly in these changes that are coming. And changing gears a little bit, um, but it all fits in. We, When we look at the river, we think about um, the river health, as I mentioned, and also flooding. And part of that is understanding dams and their role in um, impacting river health and their role in flood control or flood exacerbation. 
And we also, as you mentioned in the beginning of the beginning of the presentation, that we're working with indigenous partners to understand their goals and desires for the river and their history with the river. And the Watertown Dam um, is very, it's a very interesting site. It was occupied by First Peoples for over probably four to 10,000 years. It's one of the longest occupied sites. It's a long historical uh, fishing site because it's a change in grade. So it's a little bit of a rapid, it's a good place to fish. It is um, because of that, the site of the first fishing weir and dam that were built by the colonists. So the first dam in Massachusetts was built at Watertown Dam. And it was built in the late 16, in the mid 1600s at the opposition of the indigenous people who were there. There's a long documented history of the tribal rights and agreements that were there for the fishing resources that were overridden by the colonial government and then by the, by the Massachusetts government over time. And it no longer, for a long time, it was a mill dam. Um, and then during the hurricanes in the, in the 1950s, it was partially destroyed. It was rebuilt um, in 1966, I think. And uh, 1903 was the last time that it generated power, I should say. It was rebuilt in 1966, and it does not serve a purpose. It doesn't have uh, any flood control uh, mechanism, and it doesn't generate power. It does have a fish ladder, but it is built on the wrong side of the river. So the American shad restoration effort that we mentioned earlier, which has been successful, those shad can only get up to the Watertown Dam, but they can't get up up over the fish ladder and into the rest of the river. So they are blocked. So we have been working um, hard to build support for removal of this dam. We have full support from the Watertown City Council and many adjacent conservation commissions and communities. And it's owned by DCR. So we've been advocating to DCR to take this dam out and to uh, restore the river. And River restoration in such a highly urbanized area has the real power to change how people feel about their role in the environment and for people to see the river heal right in front of them and to be a part of that. Mm. Something that we try to kind of help people actually visualize because we do believe that's what forms that connection, as Jen was mm -hmm. saying. And so you can see here, this is actually an image that was generated by one of our consultants so that people can get a sense of, well, we're not losing the river. We're not losing what, what people love in terms of the rapids or the sounds or even, in fact, the birds, where we're still having that natural environment. And in fact, we're just kind of improving it in, in so many ways. So that's why you see that visual there. So we've been uh, talking a little bit about um, sort of law adjacent issues and the way that we have been sort of baking law into our process, the partners that we work with and the couple of suits that we have mentioned thus far. But as an organization focused on protecting Charles River, there are obviously kind of uh, a sense that we need to get more directly involved with legal issues. And so I myself am an attorney. We also have another attorney on staff. And so we, we've been trying to think more actively about how we can incorporate law into our advocacy and how we, as an organization, trying to pivot to a more legally focused approach can associate and assist other watershed associations in our area and in Massachusetts. Uh, so... With that in mind, uh, just to get you kind of a sense of the universe of laws that we work with and the way that we do kind of operate within the legal sphere. So in terms of federal law, there really is no law that is you know, sort of as much on point as the Clean Water Act, which was, as many of you I'm sure are already familiar with, passed in 1972 with the objective of restoring and maintaining the chemical, physical, and biological integrity of our nation's waters. Now, obviously, there's a very important case and development that we will be covering later, but uh, with SACA v. EPA. But for now, let's just leave the Clean Water Act where it is and pretend it is still as powerful as it has ever been. Um, 
Moving on past that, we kind of go to the state law level. And so there are a number of wonderful state laws that we have the opportunity to work with. And so as you can see there, that list starts off with Chapter 91 and the idea that all Massachusetts residents should be able to have access to waterfronts. And Jen has worked a lot on, on Chapter 91. I mean, it's just anything you want to say about our, our work with boathouses at this point. No, not I'll talk about it. But okay. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, and then so you have the Wetlands Protection Act, which has also a great impact on the, our work. We work, as we've heard, with a lot of conservation commissions and their jurisdiction granted under the Wetlands Protection Act has allowed us to undertake a lot of initiatives. We continue to work with them to try and think about how they can help us deal with some of our current issues, kind of that we'll cover later, but just as a hint, uh, issues with pesticides or denticides, herbicides, often seas are very key issues that conservation commissions actually do have jurisdiction over as part of the Wetlands Protection Act, since these are often deployed next to uh, jurisdictional waters for these conservation commissions. Moving on, we have the Massachusetts Environmental Policy Act, the Massachusetts Endangered Species Act, which is one of the most protective in the nation. Uh, we work with all sorts of administrative law within uh, the Massachusetts general laws and something that we're con still considering in the context of the Water Management Act, which, as you see, is, is the final state law there. Uh, as I noted, administrative law, right? So as you've been hearing, the narrative here is not just pursuing law qua law in the sense that we're actually going and litigating cases. We're working with local, state, federal agencies to promulgate defensible and sustainable regulations, drawing on our scientific expertise. As Jen says, we have an interdisciplinary staff. And we're working with our scientists to make sure that we can contribute that expertise to the process and kind of head off litigation, which as many of you I'm sure can agree, is the best way of handling legal issues. Um, working within these regulatory systems to ensure that these projects are compliant with the environment centers and best practices is a large part of what we're doing. And so that also entails, of course, regulatory comment letters and trying to make sure that green stormwater infrastructure is, is first in people's minds when they're going to do development. And this leads us to local laws and, and how we can get especially in a state where in Massachusetts, where you have a lot of local power kind of consolidated within a couple of boards, the idea of having a powerful bylaw that will protect trees or establish a, a stormwater utility is an incredible resource and, and something that we really try and incorporate into our advocacy. So there have been though, in, in terms of actual direct lit litigation, a couple of cases from 2013 to 2018, there were uh, a number of ways that we've tried to get involved with stormwater lawsuits. And so, as you see there on the top left, the Mass Department of Transportation lawsuit that we engaged in with the Conservation Law Foundation, tried to cover the idea of what stormwater discharges from mass highways are doing to our water systems. Tying in with that is the Municipal Stormwater Sewer Systems, I believe, mm -hmm. IMS4 uh, is, is that acronym there, uh, with the Conservation Law Foundation in support of EPA's ability to uh, regulate these MS4s. And that leads us all the way to where we are currently, still today, uh, working with CLF. Uh, you know, against EPA to try and get them to exercise what's known as resi residual designation authority, which is something we will also cover in further detail soon. All right. So um, actually, before we move on past this one, let me talk a little bit more about residual designation, because that is kind of a, a key aspect of our work right now. And it is something that we plan on working a lot more on in the future. Residual designation authority essentially allows EPA to regulate uh, non-MS4s, non non-municipal separate stormwater sewer systems. Uh, generally, you're regulating these larger businesses. The residual designation allows 
EPA to require NIPTES permits, uh, National Pollution Discharge Elimination System permits for other sort of water discharges or category of discharges on a case-by-case basis. And so here in the Charles River watershed, we've worked with EPA extensively in Region 1 to try and kind of provide a fire under their butts to get them to uh, really, you know, exercise this authority in a meaningful way. Um, And so that's an ongoing issue that, as I said, we'll talk further about, but I really wanted to make sure that all of you are aware of this and this context as we move on. Right. So another sort of key foundational thought here is that, as Jen said, climate change is water change. And so climate change for us, this sort of natural law is essential as a parameter, as the laws that I've been talking about thus far. And, you know, to give you a sense of why that is and how that plays out, there is sort of a current issue with, as Jen noted, the severe droughts that Massachusetts has been experiencing and the role of the Water Management Act. So the Water Management Act uh, was passed in 1986, and it set up two separate regimes, water use regimes. So the registered users, which were those water suppliers that were already withdrawing water at the time of the Water Management Act's passage, And they were sort of grandfathered into the system, for lack of a better word. Uh, And then there are permittees, and they were the separate and future users of water here in Massachusetts. And DEP was able to uh, subject their amounts of water withdrawn to permit conditions. Um, So these registered amounts, these registration statements are sort of key because there is a perception by water suppliers that the amount that they have, their registered amount under their registration statements amounts to a property right such that it should not and cannot be regulated. And this issue got to the courts in 2010 with Water Department of Fairhaven v. Department of Environmental Protection. And again, I'm sure many of you on this call are familiar with this case. This was sort of a bombshell case for Massachusetts and for the Water Management Act. Uh, so the sort of the, the takeaway from that case is that a registrant may continue to forever withdraw water at the rate of its existing withdrawal and that the Water Management Act essentially grandfathered, as I said, a registrant's entitlement to their existing withdrawals and that the only exception would be for a water emergency. Now, this leads us to where we are today, where we are experiencing severe drought conditions in many parts of the state that do not or well, I was about to say that they don't warrant a state of water emergency, but that's not necessarily accurate. They just simply are not getting that state of water emergency in order to trigger restrictions. And so last year, the state actually, the DEP did try and condition registration statements and change its policy. And that has led us to now currently when registration statements were issued about a month ago, and we are seeing a, a huge amount of uh, fighting over the fact that these registration statements contained a new element, which were limits on non-essential watering during times of declared drought. Uh, And that is an attempt, as I said, to condition registration statements that most of these registrants feel should not be conditioned whatsoever. And so that's current litigation that's happening right now. Again, I'm sure many of you are more familiar with it than even I am, but it is giving you a sense of the way that climate change inevitably impacts the way that Charles River Watershed Association approaches our legal advocacy and the way that we sort of must think about climate change as we move forward. And with that, I'll pass it off to Jen to discuss the shim cap. Okay. And so in addition to in addition to the Water Management Act and thinking about sort of the patchwork of um, responsibilities and authority for managing um, use of water, that is reflected in some ways in the way that the state has been thinking about its hazard mitigation and climate adaptation plan. And Massachusetts is, is a leader in that 
it aligns its um, FEMA and MEMA plans and brings together um, both federal and state emergency management planning. And also in that there are clear guidelines for how the state should be thinking about climate change adaptation and resilience. And to that end, um, the state put together in 2018, the SHIMCAP, which has a number of recommendations, um, including that the state uh, do like what we did for the Charles River flood model, that it take a look, a good hard look at what future flooding looks like and communicate that with, com with communities so that they can be prepared for climate change. And the state has done that to a very limited limited effect in that it has given funding to the Charles River Watershed Association and also the Mystic the Mystic River Watershed Association, but that's really about it, um, to have them put together these plans to think about, think about it and work with communities on that. And so we track what the state is, um, is asking itself to do through the SHIMCAP and advocate for them to do better and to put in place the recommendations that they they um, they authored in 2018, and that is being updated, and we expect an updated shim cap sometime within the next couple of months. And I mention this because it's it's not exactly force of law. Some of this, they are recommendations, but they are recommendations that are built upon um, state law and also Governor Baker's Executive Order 569. And they are, um, it's very important that we track them and that we work with communities and state agencies to move them forward. So uh, very much on that sort of same, same sort of sense of what, what is force of law and how are we working with our communities? We would be remiss if we didn't cover PFAS, which of course our watershed, like many other watersheds and like all of us are in fact dealing with uh, currently as we sort of gain a greater understanding of the per and polyfluoroalkyl substances got through that. What do you know? Uh, and so the, the sort of the key development right now is that there has within the past couple of months been new EPA guidance uh, on allowable limits for PFOS. And so uh, there are, are two separate limitations, and I won't get too far into that, uh, but the, the essential understanding that you need to have right now is that the amount is about four parts per trillion, and we are talking what essentially is a couple of drops in an Olympic-sized swimming pool is the way a lot, a lot of municipalities have been trying to express it to their citizens as they try and capture just how stringent these regulations are and, indeed, how stringent they need to be. And so... As you can see there from the slide, the, the problem being is that these are very protective, very necessary regulations, but multiple towns in our watershed have detected PFOS at levels over the allowable limits set by EPA. And so that has major implications for these, for these cities. They're not going to be able to serve this water in, to their citizens, and they need to come up with alternative solutions. Uh, one of those would be kind of working with the Massachusetts Water Resources Authority and that their efforts to expand their coverage and try and get water from the Quabbin Reservoir, which has easily met any of these standards that have been proposed or even imposed for PFOS. So there is definitely an answer, but there are a lot of environmental justice implications. There's a lot of cost implications, and there are a lot of barriers to using WRA water effectively for these towns. And so there's going to be a bit of a shuffle. You may have heard that Cambridge briefly switched over to MWRA water just while it was trying to sort of cover and implement PFOS remediation efforts, which are possible. They are just very expensive currently. All of this is to eventually just to, as you can see there, 
the aqueous film forming foams, multi-district litigation. This is on the level of an asbestos case of the old years. There are some hundred plaintiffs and they're suing everyone from 3M to DuPont for these film forming uh, compounds that PFOS are generally used. And you can see there on the slide, some of the common products and firefighters, I should just quickly note, are particularly involved with this as it is in their PPE, personal protective equipment, and they are getting cancer at alarming rates as a result of this PFOS. And so some of our watershed communities are already litigating and part of these, and we are just kind of trying to stay aware and abreast of this for now, so we have a good understanding of how we can assist our watershed and possibly use the law to uh, you know, secure some sort of justice for them as they try and deal with these increasing costs. Mm -hmm. So uh, another another you know sort of issue that we've sort of hinted at is this uh, this MS4 permit, and there should be a new one coming up very soon. Uh, essentially, as I was mentioning, the MS4 permit is, is allows municipalities to discharge stormwater to the rivers and other water bodies, and we're essentially just trying to control particularly pervasive and uh, impactful nutrients that would get passed through stormwater into our water bodies and cause eutrophication and algal blooms that lead to severe problems within our water bodies. So as you can see there, too much phosphorus, for instance, uh, significant impervious surface. So think, I mean, hopefully you all are familiar with this term, but just think any sort of concrete surface where water will hit it. And because it's impervious, run off to the nearest water body. Uh, in 2016, CRWA did challenge the uh, MS4 permit, which resulted in more stringent permit conditions, something that we're incredibly proud of. Uh, but we continue. There's Still so much work to be done, especially to meet these more stringent permit conditions. So we work with our watershed communities to ensure that they comply on time with these permit requirements. And so this is going all the way back to that idea of bylaws. How can we get them thinking about how they can afford to comply with these new conditions? Um, so I, I think that covers it to some degree. But as I said, the, the key thing for you all to understand is that Sierra Dewey is kind of closely involved with this currently, as we expect that new MS4 permit, as you see on the bottom right slide. Yes, please. Um, also, one of the things that we do, in, in addition to the bylaws, is we work with communities to identify green infrastructure projects that can um, count towards our MS4 permit. And mm -hmm. so um, there's been a number of communities where we put in rain gardens um, or other GI projects. And our model is to go into a community and help them get funding and help them with the engineering and the construction and um, help them identify sites. And with the hope that as they build up that local capacity, they're able to replicate that kind of project in different parts of, um, of their town. We just did one in Milford with the DPW and the Parks Department, where we put in a number of rain gardens in the Milford Town Park. It was a long project. Um, it was very successful. We just did a ribbon cutting. It was funded by the state's municipal vulnerability um, program funding. And in talking with the DPW guys um, at the river ribbon cutting, one of the things they said was that it was so exciting to be able to work with the parks department um, to identify these sites and that when they had scoped out what it might cost to um, bring in a bring in a contractor to do the construction, that it was two thirds more than what they were able to do on their own. And they're hoping that they're able to go find other sites and do the same thing and work towards their MS4 compliance and put in place um, beautiful rain gardens and other types of features that had sort of educational and um, overall sort of mental health and green space benefits. Mm -hmm. So uh, again, sort of 
touching on our, our, our very current issues, things that we are still contending with to this day and that require us not only to think about direct legal strategies, but also work with state and local agencies. Uh, there is the issue of compliance sewer overflows or CSOs. So uh, as we mentioned earlier, the Charles used to be extremely polluted, extremely polluted. And one of the biggest problems is that billions of gallons of sewage used to flow into the Charles annually through these CSOs. Uh, essentially, as you can see from this diagram, a combined sewer overflow uh, built is a built pipe that collects both sewage and stormwater in the same pipe. And so when a heavy storm comes and we have tons of water going into these pipes, it actually lifts out sewage and deposits it directly in the outfall pipe to our river. Uh, so this means that you know we're not having overwhelmed sewer systems, but we also are having raw sewage flowing into our river. And so as Jen noted, this is something that CRWA has been trying to tackle from a lot of different angles, including just making sure that people are aware when we do have these events, when sewers are indeed uh, discharging directly into the river so that people aren't getting um, you know, in contact with, with raw mm -hmm. sewage. So a lawsuit was filed decades ago to clean up the Boston Harbor, which is commonly referred to as a Boston Harbor lawsuit. It led to the creation of the MWRA that I've been discussing uh, and also resulted in a court-ordered plan to upgrade the sewer system to reduce the amount of sewage flowing into our rivers. Notice that I said reduce, not eliminate sewage flowing into our rivers. Indeed, that would be quite expensive. And so there is a sort of a question, as always, of trade-offs and what we can do to get sort of the most bang out of the limited resources available. Now, huge improvements have been made during the intervening decades, but millions of gallons of sewage still are flowing into the Charles annually. And so this continues mm -hmm. to be an issue that we contend with. Yeah, and I should say we're working with the MWRA on their long-term control plan and the variances to that. And part of our work is to understand how to right-size the gray infrastructure needs with green infrastructure. So we are exploring what can be done in the watershed through green infrastructure, which is more cost-effective than some of the larger, more expensive gray infrastructure options to reduce those needs so that we can get to zero or as close to zero as we can. So there's no longer sewage going into the river. Mm. And I'll just quickly note also, if you were looking at that diagram, POTW stands for publicly owned treatment works, essentially just again, the, the, the agency uh, at the municipal level in charge of controlling sewer. Uh, so on this slide, I again kind of want to reinforce this idea that climate change is shifting the way that CRWA must approach our legal issues. And so climate change is leading to heavier downpours, which is releasing more uh, sewage into our waters from these CSOs. And so that's why this issue which has always been important, only becomes more critical as we see this increase in rainfall that Jen was discussing earlier. At this point, this issue is, is red hot, right? We, we saw red flags just a couple of days mm -hmm. ago as a result of what to me seemed a rather minor storm. So if we see this sort of happening all the time, all that progress that we've made, even if we don't have cars floating in the river, we still have water that is not ever going to be swimmable or fishable. Uh, certainly not uh, that one that we would want to swim or fish in. So this all leads us to sort of the, the big news of the morning, which is uh, in the second the EPA case. In this case, uh, which was in front of the Supreme Court for a while here, uh, has just been decided. The background in very basic terms is that property owners uh, file filled wetlands that were a few hundred feet away from a lake in Idaho without a Clean Water Act permit from the EPA. And EPA determined that they violated the act and ordered them to remove the fill. And of course, litigation ensued. At issue was the scope of the Clean Water Act, right? Whether or not this property that had been filled was in fact covered under the jurisdiction of the Clean Water Act and was in fact considered to be waters of the US. And I mean, this touches on decades of litigation and sort of 
changing understandings of what the jurisdictional scope of the Clean Water Act is. We've seen a lot of shift from EPA itself, and we've seen a lot of shift in court precedent, as this morning demonstrates. So uh, the, the narrow interpretation of the act right now that has come out from this morning with the idea that there needs to be a continuous connection to a water of the United States, a WOTUS, uh, is potentially going to be very harmful. And we're, we're, like everyone else, kind of just hearing the news. We've yet to be able to really analyze the effect that this is going to have on our watershed, given Massachusetts' own state law regimes around how waters and wetlands are protected. Uh, but, you know, stay tuned. Please do follow our social media as we try and uh, approach this. We'll definitely be, as with most environmental organizations, releasing information on the effect on our watershed and also just sort of on our overall analyses. Um, we did join originally as, uh, the suit with an amicus brief to try and avoid this result. Um, we do believe this is ultimately a very bad thing for mm -hmm. our ability to protect our watershed and also for our other watershed associations to protect their their waters. Uh, certainly, when it gets to the question and answers section, if people want to pose questions about this one, we welcome that. We would also welcome your answers. Uh, this is, as I said, a developing issue. Uh, to end on a little, or at least to approach the end on a little bit more of an optimistic note, uh, CRWA has been, you know, as you've seen, somewhat successful. We've certainly been scrappy. Uh, with regard to the Medfield State Hospital, we did enjoy some success. And so the former Medfield State Hospital, which was a state psychiatric hospital complex, had been dumping its waste directly on the banks of the Charles for decades, just as you saw earlier with Milford in 1965. This created a three-acre contaminated site with asbestos, lead, coal ash from their on-site power plant and other hazardous materials. So when the hospital closed, CRWA, along with the town and other local residents, pushed the state to undertake a full riverfront and sediment cleanup. CRWA played an instrumental role in these negotiations, and the result was the largest environmental restoration project in our watershed. Uh, in 2015, after years of this cleanup, remediation, and ecological restoration, a new riverfront park has been created, the Charles River Gateway Park. It is beautiful. We encourage you to go check it out. It has actually got a canoe launch, and it's got recreational trails, and uh, it has 4.5 million gallons of floodplain storage, which, as we talked about, has so many benefits for downstream residents and also, of course, just for ecosystem restoration there on that stretch of the Charles. And we are still currently working with the state, with, with DCAM, with, uh, with a number of other parties, both local and at the state level, to continue to monitor the site and ensure that the work that we did in the past continues to be respected. And this continues to be a resource for residents and also for wildlife. Uh, the state must continue monitoring potential pollution issues, must perform routine maintenance. And if the site is not properly maintained, stormwater control measures like the rain gardens that we've been discussing will be undermined and will not be as effective and it's been a little tough because the state is reluctant to spend the sort of money required to have this remediation continue and to have this maintenance continue. And it's only through the mechanisms of the law that we've been able to continue to have the weight to sit at the table and say, this needs to be done. And, and as you all are aware, it's important to you know speak softly, but carry a big stick. And the, the law has been able to help us with this particular issue. I'll pass it off to you, Jen. Okay. So I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the I-90 Alston multimodal project, even though it's, I suppose, kind of on pause with the federal funding falling through from that um, first round of applications, which is not unusual or unanticipated, but it will take a while for this project to happen. And we've been involved in this um, since the beginning uh, in large part because the proposals for 12 um, lanes of traffic at grade 
One is a whole lot of asphalt um, right at the river and has stormwater runoff um, implications as well as heat implications. It also would require the construction of a temporary road out into the river, which we would oppose. Um, boardwalk is sort of one thing. Um, a temporary road into the river is another. And also, you know, we ask, like, what else could be done here? What are the other options? How can we get creative? Could we do something like a covered deck? Could we do something that is stacked? Could we do a tunnel? Like, there's a lot of different ways to get at this. This is does this is a the initial designs are really designed for like the 1950s. They're not, sure. you know, when you look at the when you look at what's going on around the United States or even in places in Massachusetts, like down in Fall River, we're trying to undo the damage of putting um, large highways right next to features like this, like the Charles River and the park that's there. And we're trying to reconnect people to um, these resources. And a large part of the conversation around this is about that, about connecting the neighborhoods um, that were bisected by the overpass that is there on the highway that is there, which is very much a real concern and a goal, I think, for everyone. But what we ask is how can we do that in a way that doesn't result in that much asphalt between a neighborhood and the river and stormwater runoff and construction into the river? This is a like a once in a generation opportunity. And it is the um, one of the most beautiful um, places uh, in the in the Boston area, it has real opportunity to be better than this, and so that's what brings us to the table. And we'll continue to um, to advocate and monitor this as the designs continue to evolve. We're not done yet. I would say um, we've covered a lot of territory of all the different things that we do. Um, it's a very dynamic organization, even with 16 people. We have a, we have a lot of work um, before us, and there's a lot of ways to get involved. We are very proud of the way that we work with volunteers. We have legal interns, by the way. Um, if uh, anybody knows of folks that are interested in doing that, we do that in the summer and throughout the year. We appreciate pro, pro bono help um, with the Clean Water Act, the Water Management Act, Labor and Employment Matters, real estate leases, contracts, all those ways. Um, if you're interested in getting involved with us that way, please reach out. We have a very vibrant River Advocates program where we work with residents interested in achieving implementation of climate smart practices. So that might be um, look, advocating for a local bylaw, weighing in on specific projects, um, getting involved with something like the Watertown Dam removal. We do water quality, monitor, water quality monitoring for those that are so inspired to get out every morning once a month and collect water samples or go out with us in the summer. And we also do um, invasive species pulls, which are a lot of fun. So folks go out on the river and remove water chestnut or pull bittersweet from the shores um, or other kinds of projects. And those are also good ways to, um, as a, a corporate entity, um, to get involved. We do run those um, with different companies, as well as our big Charles River cleanup every summer, which is a ton of fun. And I would also note that um, none of our work happens without the support of individuals and corporations. And if you were so inclined to donate or support CRWA um, and our work to clean the Charles and to keep it healthy and vibrant, we would very, very much appreciate it. And we definitely appreciate your time and coming to hear about our work. And I'd say with that, I would open it to questions. And we do have the, uh, so your questions pulled up. So if you submit those, we'll go ahead and read them out. Um, hopefully have a good conversation with any, any issues that you have questions about. 
we'll take comments as well. Yeah. <laughs> I know we covered a lot of territory. We covered the issues so comprehensively that none of you have questions. That's stupendous. Okay. Oh, oh there. there's a question. Oh, yeah. How did you both come to CRWA and what drew you to the organization? Uh, so I started my career in um, Massachusetts after graduate school. I worked for the State Endangered Species Program as a conservation biologist and regulator. And doing that, um, I didn't start out being interested in policy. And working for the state got me interested in it because we were revising the Endangered Species Act and uh, the regulations. And it was pretty interesting understanding how that worked and who came to the table for those conversations. And that um, ultimately drew me to working for Mass Audubon as their legislative director for a number of years, and then to the trustees of reservations as their head of government relations. And in both of those jobs, I worked with CRWA on a number of projects and just had tremendous um, respect for the work um, of the organization and their skill and the success that they had uh, in cleaning up the river. And so um, when this opportunity came to join as deputy director of advocacy, I was very excited and I came over and um, I've been consulting for a little while, um, came to CRWA and it's been um, a wonderful experience thus far. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so for me, I've always been interested in water law. Uh, my undergraduate thesis was on how we could get effective water law and policy to those that needed it. Uh, and in law school, it was also a focus of mine. I had the opportunity of uh, actually working with the EPA as they struggled to understand how they were going to deal with the vacation of the Navigable Waters Protection Rule, which is one of these previous CWA New Water Act regimes that we've discussed. And so having the chance to be right there on the ground and really get involved with a national regulation like that was incredibly exciting, but it was also incredibly frustrating. And so I had the sense that I really wanted to go to an organization where I could see the sort of local impact and real uh, people that I was interacting with and helping. And so uh, when I saw the opportunity to come up to Boston and work with CRWA, after reading all of the work that we have done over the past 40, 50, 60 years, I was just immensely impressed and really desiring the opportunity to also work with an agency or an organization that had a focus on incorporating science into its advocacy. And so you know, we're blessed to work with such an interdisciplinary team and with so many people who do have that understanding of what the actual science is behind the advocacy that we do. And then next question we have is any helpful actions taken by conservation commissions in these communities? I would say absolutely. Um, we work closely with communities with conservation commissions um, and others. And conservation commissions, I would say there are two roles. They have an advocacy role as well as an implementation role. And we work with them on um, updating wetlands bylaws when appropriate. Um, also, uh, we work with them to um, be advocates for specific projects like the removal of the Watertown Dam. Um, 
They are also, you know, they are the people that are on the ground. And when we think about conservation commissions too, we think about land conservation and working with them to identify projects. Mm -hmm. um, we also think about how we um, educate and work with conservation commissions because of their role in flood management. Mm -hmm. And that is um, a big part of our work now as we, the Charles River flood model is recently developed. And so we're trying to understand how we can best um, through our compact and with the conservation commissions that are in those communities, work with them to understand um, future flooding impacts and to plan um, better for that. Yeah, and I'll only add that as I, as I noted throughout this presentation, part of our work is making sure that people and conservation commissions are aware of state opportunities and state programs. And yeah. so getting them involved with programs like the MVP program and, and making sure that they have access to the funds necessary to improve their MS4 programming and stormwater infrastructure through things like the stormwater utility funds. Um, you know, Dedham has recently implemented a stormwater utility fund and that's, you know, entirely all credit goes to them. And at the same time, we're honored to be able to kind of act as consultants and help them understand what other communities have done to be a resource for them as they ask questions. And so these are real concrete actions that they have taken that will allow them to stay sort of ahead of the game as they approach new uh, new statutes, new issues they have to comply with. Yeah. And another question, is dredging an option to prevent flooding? Mm -hmm. Yes, it absolutely is. Yeah. One of our, um, I mean, in a, in a way that is appropriate for the site, um, one of our projects that we identified through the Charles River um, Climate Compact is the Hardy Pond Project um, in Waltham. And pond storage is a way to, increasing natural pond storage is a way to manage um, and prevent flooding. And that can be done, for example, at Hardy Pond, there's a bunch of fill that was put in, um, I think in the 60s, and we can remove that, um, restore the wetlands, and also uh, increase the capacity of the pond to store water during a rain event. So you can lower it to a some extent and then let the water raise up and then re release it in a more controlled fashion. And there are a number of sites in the watershed where that can be done, but Hardy Pond is the one that is um, the most far along in terms of community support and understanding. So we're working with Waltham to, um, to do the final stages of a feasibility study and to permit and to ultimately get that project funded um, and constructed. Mm. Okay. I won't add anything because Jen perfectly covered that and we just got a bombshell of a question. Yeah, yeah. Um, a terrific presentation. Thank you. Is CRWA involved in legal claims against sources of PFAS in the CRWA watershed? No, we are not at this point in time. We are tracking it and trying to understand the impact in the watershed, both in terms of drinking water um, pollution and remediation, um, and then also what that means for MWRA expansion. A number of communities in our watershed are either partial or fully on the MWRA. Those tend to be down more towards Boston. The um, ones more in the headwaters are um, on wells. And so we, we are concerned and also um, it's a it's it's a it is a complicated question, and we're trying to really understand how to do that and whether or not we communicate with commu with communities. We're talking a little bit about the yeah. the North Carolina lawsuit. Yeah, right. Yeah, so so that multi district suit is, as I said, one that our some of our communities have already gotten engaged with 
precisely because they're looking for ways to recoup their costs of compliance. And so one of the things that we're looking to do is just make sure that we understand the suit well enough that we can support both the state. I mean, uh, you know, now Governor Healy, during her time as Attorney General, did file a suit that actually was consolidated into this overall multi-district litigation. Uh, they asked for it to come back to Massachusetts, but it is very much staying there in uh, in North Carolina. And so there's a sense that what we really need to do is just have a very good understanding so that we can bring it to our partners. We don't necessarily have the right standing to bring a suit ourselves yet, uh, but you know it's something that we continue to monitor and primarily for now function, as I said, in an advisory capacity and make sure that we're able to assist. I mean, we're, we're at an hour. Yeah. But we're happy questions. to take questions, yeah. want to jump on and say thank you so much to our panel for speaking today and thank you all for joining us this afternoon we certainly look forward to seeing you all at future events have a wonderful day everybody thank you everybody thank you everyone